Hi, I'm Ananda Mani. If you're treating patients with chronic pelvic pain and looking for better clinical outcomes, then join me on the 21st of February for a Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery. Chronic pelvic pain, navigating the comorbidities and complexities to improve treatment. During this 90-minute webinar, I will guide you through how to address the foundations of pelvic pain, how to fine-tune your assessment of this complex condition, and the complementary therapies and interdisciplinary approaches that I apply clinically to improve patient outcomes. Register your place at bioceuticals.com.au and I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work, and the connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to the Elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Dr Paul Clayton is a clinical pharmacologist and pharmaco-nutritionist. He is a strong advocate of lifestyle and nutrition to help prevent and treat disease, and he has written several books including Out of the Fire and Let Your Food Be Your Pharmaco-Nutrition. Paul works with leading doctors and clinical scientists in many countries, where he helps them design and supervise preclinical and clinical trials on pharmaco-nutrition interventions. Paul's expertise is in a range of natural therapeutic interventions, and he has recently published a couple of articles on palmitol ethanolamide, or otherwise known as PEA. It is his expertise in PEA that we wanted to cover today. Welcome to FX Medicine, Paul. Thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure to catch up with you again, Adrian. Really a pleasure. Yeah, I know we've uh, certainly met on a few occasions and... Uh, Every time I talk to you, I learn a bit more about uh, nutrition and, and, and pharmaco-nutrition. So I'll, I'll, today I wanted to talk about PEA, but um, before we do that, can you tell us what a pharmaco-nutritionist is and how you got into the area? <laughs> First of all, uh, I need to make it pretty clear that a pharmaco-nutritionist actually does not have very much to do with classical nutrition at all. Pharmaco-nutrition is a portmanteau term and as the name itself implies, it's a kind of a synthesis, so uh, pharmacology and, and nutrition. Uh, fundamentally, it's a movement away from classic uh, pasteurian medicine. And by pasteurian, I'm talking about the use of basically the concept of specificity. And this goes all the way back to Niels Grab, you know, the Danish microbiologist, the Grab stain. And then you have the cold tar dyes, the the sulfur drugs, the penicillins, and this lays the foundations for the modern model of reactive healthcare. So first of all, you wait until someone gets sick, and then once they do get sick, you try to alter a very specific receptor or enzyme or protein or these days a gene in order to modify that disease. Now, that approach worked extremely well back in the 19th century when the main causes of illness and death were infections. It doesn't work at all well in the 21st century where the vast majority of cases of disease and death are due to chronic degenerative diseases. Now, these are not caused in the main by single infectious agents. They may play into it, but uh, broadly speaking, 
They're caused by multiple metabolic errors, which are in turn driven by multiple nutritional imbalances. And so this is where pharmaconutrition comes in. It's not specific. It's the opposite of Pasteurian medicine. It's actually Bernardian. Now, but now I'm referring now to Claude Bernard, who was Pasteur's contemporary and compatriot. And Bernard mm-hmm. talks about the Million Thierrier, and his work is taken up by Walter Cannon, who talks to us about homeostasis. And what pharmaconutrition does, it relies on using the uh, known uh, pharmacological functions of different foods and food derivatives and cross-references those against the multiple metabolic errors that are driving disease. So it's not a magic bullet. It's really more of a support system. Mm-hmm. And what we find when you use those types of interventions, the NCDs, the non-communicable chronic degenerative diseases that we've always thought of, as being entropic, I mean, uh, you know, the idea that it's a wear and tear thing. Well, that's nonsense. That's a way of thinking that is probably applicable to mechanical systems. It's not applicable to living systems, all of which have a capacity for repair and regeneration. It turns out that when you nullify these multiple metabolic errors, which is what the pharmacotrition is all about, then the body's ability, these processes which to do with repair and regeneration, come to the fore. They overcome, uh, in many cases, the catabolic drivers. And what you actually see is that these conditions, these so-called diseases of civilization, start to slow down, symptoms become less, requirements for pharmaceuticals become less, and then over time, many of the patients that we're treating go into remission. And they're required, they become pharmaceutically independent. Not all of them. Um, I must say that right away, that probably between seven and nine out of ten of them. So this is a very extremely productive new way of thinking about healthcare, and it lends itself very, very well to preventive rather than reactive models of healthcare. You can't use pharmaceuticals in a preventive system that's just too damn toxic, and frankly, the latest polygenic risk analyses show that you can't even identify who's going to become sick. Um, that was the last best hope, I think, of the Pasteurian model, and it's failed. But when you're talking about pharmaconutritional regimes, they're so incredibly safe. The therapeutic indices of these approaches are so wide, you can give them to just about everybody. They're cheap as chips because there's little, uh, there's no IP, really. And it is, um, I think, perforcibly going to be the next model of healthcare delivery because the current model is ruinously expensive. And it's run out of road, quite frankly. So I know you lecture throughout the world. So is, the, is it increased in popularity? Are you noticing that people, people are more interested in pharmaconutrition? Uh, oh, absolutely. And I think that the reason is that there's been an enormous proliferation of studies looking at the relationship between diet and disease, looking at the pharmacology, the cytochemistry, the, the endocrinology. It, it, it's abundantly clear now from our studies of blue zones, uh, islands geographically defined, and one or two cases, islands in time, which no longer exist. It's very clear that there are other ways of aging which are far more successful and the patterns of aging that we see around us. And what these um, blue zones of various sorts show us is that many of the symptoms that we thought were intrinsically part of the aging process, such as the thinning of bone or the furring up of arteries or the progressive loss of brain cells, aren't actually essentially parts of the aging process at all. Other cultures that live in a much healthier way than we do don't experience them to anything like the same extent that we do, if at all. 
And so if you look at groups like the Hadza, who are hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, or the Tsimani, who are forager horticulturalists in Bolivia, what you find is a population that as they get older, their blood pressure doesn't go up. They don't develop essential hypertension, which we think of as an intrinsic part of aging. Clearly, it isn't. Um, In males, they do not develop benign prostatic hyperplasia. So that's another symptom of aging that we think is normal that isn't. Uh, As they get older, their kidneys do not lose the ability to form concentrated urine. And that's something else we thought was an essential part of the aging process because that's what we see around us, but isn't. And that might sound trivial, but if your kidneys are still capable of of producing concentrated urine, you are not as likely to become dehydrated. And dehydration, as is now becoming blindingly obvious, is a key driver of many aspects of the aging process. And I'll tell you just one more thing, one more thing that they don't show that we do as we get older you see hippocampal and hypothalamic deterioration, which is really important because you're talking about the hippocampus anyway. At one of the sites in the brain where neurogenesis is still going on throughout life, in the West, in developed nations, hippocampal deterioration is very, very common. It's a forerunner of other neurodegenerative conditions. When you look at people amongst the Hadza or the Tsimani or other blue zone groups, they don't seem to display that. So some of the really profound drivers of aging or symptoms of aging that we think of as being a natural part of the process clearly are not. They're, in fact, artifacts, and they're caused by the very unhealthy exposome that we live in and on and around. So that's, in a nutshell, in a very large nutshell, that's what pharmacognitrition is. <laughs> so we can certainly, I mean, it's a fascinating topic. I know that's you know, you're extremely passionate about that area. And I mean, obviously, nutrition plays a big part. There's obviously also lifestyle factors too that are impacting on on general health and longevity and so forth too. Yes, and I don't mean to underestimate the importance of, you know, the classical things. I, I tell people don't smoke, don't drink too much mm-hmm. high-octane alcohol, take a little bit of exercise, good sleep, relaxation techniques. I mean, all of that plays into it. And I'm not going to be reductionist about this and say that it's all about your diet. But when you parse all the multiple variables that constitute what we call laughably civilization, there's so many thousands of variables that it isn't really very helpful to consider them individually. What I and my colleagues have been trying to do for decades now is to peer through that curtain and see whether there might be a smaller number of drivers of disease that one could theoretically develop antidotes for. And I think that's the point where we now are. Um, a number of these drivers have been identified, and it turns out that if you neutralize them or, or put antidotes in place, you interfere with some very substantial drivers of the aging process. And these are the techniques that we're now using in over 100 countries now to slow and, as I said, often stop, and in some cases even reverse, what we used to think of as deep aspects of the aging process. It turns out that they're amenable. And the reason why the medical profession has thought of these conditions as being progressive and irreversibly progressive is because they've been using the wrong tools. Mm. If you use pharmaceuticals, you're probably not going to be able to slow or modify them. But if you modify the drivers of disease, at that point, medical miracles start to happen. Now, I say medical miracles. They seemed pretty miraculous to us when we first started down this road. They have that whole hum stage now because we see so many of these, these types of recoveries now. They just simply become a part of routine practice. Yeah. One particular compound is uh, PEA, and I know that you've 
you know, you've got expertise in a whole range of different areas, but uh, I know that you've written some papers on PEA and uh, and that's what I was specifically wanted to talk about. So if we move on to uh, PEA, do you want to tell us what is it and how is it produced in the body? Well, I can answer that in various ways. I mean, technically, in terms of its molecular structure, it's a fatty acid amide. And I'm interested in it because you can think of it as a... Um, a sort of an atypical nutrient. In terms of uh, its function, it's an autocoid. So it's a physiologically active substance, and you can think of it as a very, very locally acting, a very transient hormone. It's produced, as far as I know, in every different type of cell it's within the membrane bilayer, and uh, there's a whole family of similar compounds. So we, we mentioned PEA, which is palmitoyl ethanolamide. But you have ethanolamides uh, of many of the other fatty acids. So one of the, some of the other really well known you've got steroid ethanolamide, oleoil, palmitoyl, and then you have arachidonyl ethanolamide, which is an andamide, and that's one of the endogenous cannabinoids. Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to mention that because it's, it's in contrast to the exogenous cannabinoids, which are, which are better known, such as cannabidiol or CBD, and I think we're, we're going to come to that later. And you take all this whole family of fatty acid amides together, they're termed alia amides, which stands for autocoid local injury antagonist amides. It's a bit of a mouthful. And that, yeah. I think, is uh, came out of um, Rita Levi-Montalcini's lab. And she, she, in fact, her group won, she won the Nobel Prize for her work uh, on these molecules. So PEA, obviously, we can, can we derive it from food? Is it obtained from foods? Yes, you can, absolutely. I mean, that's really why I consider it to be a nutrient. So it's, an, it's obviously an endogenous molecule, but you, you can derive it from uh, egg yolk. And in fact, some of the very earliest studies that began from where the, this molecule was initially characterized uh, was done with egg yolk. Peanut okay. skins is, is another sort of reasonably well-known source. And soybeans, of course, mm-hmm. they, these all have contained PEA at very different levels. I would think if you wanted to obtain pharmacologically active levels of PEA from any food, you'd probably do best to stick to egg yolks. Okay. And so we produce it endogenously. So we, um, is there anything that kind of impacts on our production of PEA that negatively or positively? Theoretically, there might be because we know... The thing is, this molecule is so important that actually there's a bunch of different synthetic routes in the body. That's how important it is. So there's a certain amount mm-hmm. of redundancy. If you block one, there's going to be other mechanisms that will still produce it. And you're simply working from fatty acids plus ethanolamine. So they're pretty widely present in the body. Uh, and I think what that does is it underscores the importance of these molecules. And I'll, I'll sort of mm-hmm. uh, stay with PEA for the moment, but its properties are shared to more or less an extent by the other I said, name as I mentioned. When you ask, what does it do in the body? Well, I mean, I think I'd have to ask you, well, what doesn't it do? Uh, I mean, it's absolutely pleiotropic. So it has um, anti-inflammatory effects. And these, I think, were some of the very first effects to be noted. And that goes all the way back to uh, to the 1950s. But um, more recently, it's been shown to be effectively an analgesic. It's an anticonvulsant. It has antimicrobial and, and antipyretic effects. It has anti-atheromatous effects, and it's an immunomodulator, and it's neuroprotective. It's working through so many different receptors, uh, receptor types in the body. So probably you could say that maybe the primary target might be your nuclear receptor peroxisome proliferator, 
activated mm -hmm. alpha receptor, so that's PPAR alpha. But it's also acting on the novel cannabinoid receptors, and these are the G protein coupled receptors, 55 and 119. But then you have some inter indirect activation of the typical of the classical cannabinoid receptors. So you've got CB1 and CB2. Uh, but that's a bit of a different effect. That's the entourage effect. And because mm -hmm. what's happening is if, if PEA is being synthesized, you're actually inhibiting uh, the degradation of anandamide. And because what you're doing is as the PEA is being synthesized, or if you're taking PEA, it's inhibiting or it's occupying the, the relatively limited bandwidth or perhaps a capacity is a better word of uh, the enzyme fatty acid amide hydrolase, that's FAAH. And it's also inhibiting mast cell degranulation. And wow. yeah, it acts at the vanilloid 1 receptor. So that adds anti allergy together with the mast cell degranulation thing and, and further analgesic effects. So this fundamentally, what this is doing, it's, it's the body's tripwire response, the very first response to tissue stress and injury and damage. It's a damping or a modulatory system. It's one of the ways in which we protect ourselves, we insulate ourselves from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, of, of heat, mm -hmm. of physical trauma, of cold, of, or, or any kind of noxious stimuli. As soon as you're exposed to that, the body immediately ramps up PEA synthesis in an attempt to downregulate the intensity of what would otherwise be mm -hmm. uh, a distracting and, or possibly even a disabling input from outside. So what happens when the, the toxic insults or there's you know, inflammation or factors going on that's just chronic? Does, that, does it continue to remain high or does it eventually kind of levels of PEA then eventually kind of reduce and lower? You have to think of PEA as a kind of pro-homeostatic factor. So as I said, it's mm -hmm. one of the first responders to cellular injury. It's not the only thing. Um, and there's other things going on as well in response to damage. So you're getting... Uh, different patterns of protein expression, and, and you've got a kind of post-transcriptional triage going on as well. But, yeah, you're right, damage upregulates PEA production. So initially, PEA levels increase during, mm -hmm. uh, let's say, inflammation or tissue damage, at least initially. But uh, eventually, the buffering mechanism is exhausted. You run out of PEA. Yeah. And that's what you need when you think about it, because at a certain point, is whatever's happening to the body is really destructive, at a certain point, you don't want to continue to buffer it. You want the body to understand that there is something bad going on and you need to withdraw. So it, this is a very short-acting buffering or homeostatic system. And it, gets, it does get exhausted. And what happens is uh, the synthetic route starts to slow. You might also get an increase in breakdown, which is being broken down by this acid I talked about, FAH, uh, which is primarily in the endoplasmic reticulum. So you do run out of PEA eventually, and this is where the rationale for exogenous PEA or PEA in supplemental form comes in. And so what does the research say with regards to PEA in supplement form? Is it, in what conditions is it particularly helpful? Well, I want to give you kind of a, a little bit of a, a historic analysis. This is a very, the very first study, we used egg yolk, and... Um, a couple of uh, some some scientists initially show that this reduced recurrences of rheumatoid arthritis and exerted uh, anti-allergy effects, 
And those first studies go back, uh, I think, into the late 30s, early 40s and extended into the 50s. And then, of course, a lot of work uh, was done in uh, all over the world uh, subsequently, and it became uh, progressively more sophisticated and more precise. And about 20 years later, the anti-inflammatory effects had become pretty well characterized. And then um, in the late 70s, there were some military studies, three or four of them, I think, and they showed that PEA reduced influenza symptoms in in a, in a bunch of in a bunch of soldiers. I think mostly the effects they were looking for were antipyretic effects, and these these were all army trials and part of a very old tradition of research into enhancing military resources. Then there is evidence on the neuroprotective side, and some of that is preclinical, and some of that is clinical. Uh, so the majority of the work is, um, most majority of research is around kind of pain. Is that is that correct initially? I think that at the moment most of the work has been done on pain, but we're now there's also a bunch of studies that have been done on sports recovery, uh, sleep yep. patterns, various types of epilepsy, and on uh, various types of nerve pain, so uh, neuropathic pain as opposed yeah. to narcissistic. Although I think that PEA, I'm pretty certain PEA has an effect on narcissistic pain as well because PEA reduces neuroinflammatory stress. And neuroinflammatory stress is in, in the what we call the pain matrix. That is the, the basis of narcissistic pain. So for me, PEA is a very, very interesting analgesic indeed because not only is it tackling uh, two different types of pain, but it's doing so in a very um, safe way. Uh, the body knows how to handle it. It seems to have a very high therapeutic index. I must admit, when I was um, preparing for our our talk, I you know, read a lot. I read a fair bit about PEA and some of the research being done. It's just fascinating. Uh, some of the work, and you mentioned that, you know, what doesn't it do? And I even saw some research yeah, looking at kind of PEA levels and psychosis and bipolar disorder, and there's some, you know, differences in yeah. PEA levels there. And um, and even in terms of supplementation, there was a couple of studies <laughs> there whereby it, it improved some of the negative symptoms associated with the, those disorders. Oh, absolutely. And then when you think about it, um, some of the clinical anxiety states and certainly some of the depressive states they appear to have a neuroinflammatory component and as PEA has the ability to, to reduce neuroinflammatory stress, I'm not surprised that it's a manifesting clinically useful results in these types of conditions. The other thing that I like about it is that um, this is not always the case when you're working with nutrients. There's been some pretty good dose-ranging work. And if you look at the studies that have been done, the ones you've mentioned, and uh, as you say, there are large numbers of them, the dosing is fairly consistently between 10 or 30 milligrams of PEA per kilogram body weight. And that gives rise to clinical usage of um, anywhere between 300 and 1,200 milligrams daily. But as I said, from everything that I've seen and my own personal experience, you can ramp that dosage up considerably if, uh, if you find it useful without worrying that you're going to trigger the types of problems that we routinely see when we use pharmaceutical analgesics. So with PEA, though, the so you mentioned earlier that um, its absorption, its bioavailability is 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 not necessarily is is an issue. So there's different forms out there that increases absorption. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is actually not a very user-friendly molecule in the sense that um, if you simply look at raw PEA, as it were, it's it's kind of waxy 
uh, almost a waxy substance, and bioavailability is very, very poor. And uh, people have tried different ways of getting around this. Uh, you get micronized and you get ultra-micronized PEA, and that does give you some improvements. Consistently, the best bioavailability that I've seen uses this Australian technology called Lipisperse. I think that uh, that was something that was originally developed for uh, for pharmaceuticals, but it's been uh, dragged across to the supplemental sector. And there's um, there's one version of PEA that uses this technology to get consistently good plasma levels. Yep. And so can you measure PEA levels in the blood? Like if somebody thought, oh, okay, should I supplement with PEA? Can I do a blood test for PEA and see whether my levels are high or low? Can you do that? <laughs> Adrian, whatever you do, if you're going to a forensic analytical lab, do not ask for a PEA test um, because you won't get the right <laughs> one. As far as the labs go, PEA might stand for, uh, I think it's beta-phenyl ethylamine. Um, and that's a, it's used as a biomarker for ADHD uh, because beta uh, phenylethylamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter, and uh, that, that's not going to be helpful at all. And then the other thing that uh, PEA stands for is phenylethyl ether, which is a marker for levels of gram-positive bacteria in the blood. So, uh, <laughs> as I said, <laughs> they're not going to measure what you want. Um, wow. What we do know, we, what we do know is that PEA is physiologically present in human blood and, and probably all mammalian blood, frankly, at somewhere around 10 to 15 uh, picomoles per mil. But these are all research-based findings. And frankly, I, I don't know of any commercial lab that offers a test. You'd have to find a research department that was working yep. on the topic. It'd be interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, like you mentioned, that you'd have to say the full name and obviously... You'd have to learn how to say it because it's the, the difficult bit with PEA is learning how to say palmitol ethanolamide. Is that right? Is that how I say it? <laughs> well, I think once you've got that crack, the rest of it is easy. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> But then the, the labs will look at you funny and going, what, what are you talking about? So, Because um, I do know that, you know, certainly research, I mean, it was interesting with the bipolar studies that I saw, it was actually... Um, initially they were talking about the PA levels being, and it's just like you mentioned earlier, PA levels were actually raised in people having bipolar disorder initially, but then over time they yep. had low levels as the disease progressed. Um, well, I think what's happening is that if, if the, um, the psychological condition is being precipitated by uh, neuroinflammatory stress, then PEA synthesis will initially be upregulated. And that's part of the body's attempt to deal with the initial problem. Uh, you're then, at a certain point, going to run into autocoid exhaustion. And mm-hmm. the, the levels will undoubtedly fall. Now, does that mean that there is a rationale for treating these conditions with PEA? I think that the clinical data suggests that there may be. I'm not convinced that there's enough clinical data yet to be able to say unequivocally that this is the way to go. But I think... We're at that point where it, it's beginning, PEA is beginning to look like a potentially very useful treatment. I don't think I could mm-hmm. honestly state it more stronger than that. I mean, I suppose it's like you mentioned earlier. I mean, obviously you could use PEA and, and, and the research is, is really positive and it's showing some really positive findings with, you know, a whole range of conditions. But ultimately it's about looking at the drivers of what's going on or, what, you know, what's causing the, what's the drivers of those inflammation, what's the drivers of of the symptoms that people are experiencing and the changes in physiological function that people are experiencing. And, and that goes down to nutrition and lifestyle factors and are they smoking and, and, and other you know, environmental yeah. toxins that are going on. We're not, 
you could use it inappropriately, couldn't you, I suppose, just like a uh, pharmaceutical medication? Well, you could, but, I mean, Adrian, you're opening up a whole can of worms there um, <laughs> because, you know, it could, clearly chronic inflammatory stress is a hugely important driver of many, many, many medical conditions. Mm. And then when you look at the uh, epidemiology of all these conditions, as I said before, they all seem to be increasing and incurring earlier and earlier in life. And then what you have to do is to take a step back and look at what we call the food universe. Now, I know it's a bit of a hackneyed topic, but let's sort of at least mention ultra-processed foods. So these are foods which have typically more than six ingredients. They've got ingredients with names like um, emulsifiers, stabilizers, acidulants, and things like that, which you wouldn't find in a domestic kitchen. When you look at them, they are very often they've been extruded or molded, and you can't tell just by looking at them what's in them. Um, mm. That It's just a rule of thumb, not a very good definition, but it's a working definition. And if you look at the consumption of these types of products in North America, uh, depending on whose papers you believe, uh, people are consuming between 65 and 75% of all their calories in these types of foods. And Britain and Australia come in at number two and three, respectively, in the global uh, league table. They're not very far behind. Now, the problem with these types of foods is if you look at them in the round, um, I mean, any one of them is not toxic in the acute sense. But if you eat large amounts of these foods for long periods of time, they will make you sick and they will kill you because they create, amongst other things, dysbiosis, and we can get into that if you want, but certainly chronic inflammatory stress because some of the most important anti-inflammatory nutrients have almost been removed altogether. So I'm talking about polyunsaturated omega-3 fatty acids, the polyphenols, your prebiotic fibers, uh, your 1,3,1,6-beta-glucans, and, polyphen- and, and, and most of the polyphenols for different reasons. So most of your key anti-inflammatory nutrients have gone and they've been replaced for different reasons by a number of other compounds which are highly pro-inflammatory. So lots of sugar, lots of vegetable oils, but also lots of advanced glycation and lipoxylation end products. And these are actually produced during uh, the production of uh, these industrial foods um, during techniques such as spray drying, which um, are used very hot temperatures. And then you get accumulation of LPS in a lot of the uh, in what we call pillar packs of fruits and vegetables. These are gram-negative bugs that grow during refrigeration. And so you're you're depriving the body of a lot of anti-inflammatory nutrients that have always been present in traditional diets, and you're replacing them with a bunch of compounds that are high in pro-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And then it begins to make sense. Then you can look at the, our appalling global health statistics, and you think, well, yeah, of course, uh, this is what Barry Popper you know, calls the nutrition transition. And in every country where we have left traditional diets behind and moved on to this kind of industrial kibble, there's been a huge, a tenfold increase in all of these chronic degenerative diseases and certainly chronic inflammatory stress, including neuroinflammatory stress, is a very big part of that. Now, PEA is one of the tools that I would very often use as an antidote to that. You're right. I wouldn't necessarily use it on its own, but it's a very, very useful a tool which can be used in a pharmaceutical manner, i.e. as a standalone, I prefer to use it as part of a more broad-based anti-inflammatory program. I mean, that's the thing, you know, obviously we need to to really, you know, consider it from a holistic perspective, but, you know, yeah, I'm impressed by the PEA research, and I'm I'm particularly interested in, in looking, I mean, as a psychologist, I'm particularly interested in, in 
seeing the developments with regards to uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and, and dementia, yep. but as a as yep. more, I suppose, as a preventative. And, and I'd love to see, I, I see some merit in, in depression and obviously that that comorbid chronic pain, um, mood conditions, which is often uh, highly highly comorbid too. I think there's some real benefit there. Absolutely, absolutely, and that that's been my personal experience. Although um, I, I'm not treating my, my own chronic pain and depression, that's just part of the human condition. But dealing with patients, but uh, you know, in, in your profession, uh, Adrian, I'm sure you've seen a great deal more of that sort of thing than I have. Yeah. Now, one of the papers you wrote talked about uh, PEA and and you could, you know with CBD and the oh, kind yeah. of pros and cons of the two. So, can you tell us a bit? Is it an alternative? Is it potentially an alternative to CBD? I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. I mean, CBD is a fairly hot topic, and people are using it to treat all kinds of things. My response would be, yep, I think that the evidence is not as extensive as I would like, but I concede that the evidence uh, that does exist indicates that CBD can be quite effective in treating a number of inflammatory uh, conditions and a number of pain conditions. But the problem with CBD is um, not not just uh, the fact that there there are gaps in the data, but it's regulatory status. I think that's the main Mm -hmm. problem. And that's pretty uneven. I mean, it's, it's regarded as being in very different legal frameworks in different countries. And that means that its future, I think at this point anyway, is rather uncertain. The FDA has come down quite strongly against uh, CBD here in North America in the last uh, in the last 18 months or so. And part of that probably is to do with the fact that, you know, we, we know where it comes from. Uh, there, there are problems to do with that, even although medical cannabis has now become, uh, medical marijuana has now become, again, a political hot topic in the United States and has been rolled out in many of the states. The PEA uh, wasn't derived from cannabis. It's originally a food derivative. And therefore, there's no question about its legality. It's been incorporated in medical foods in part of Europe. It's very widely available as a supplement. And there's no question of, uh, I, I don't think, of its current regulatory status being uh, rescinded. So it'll do uh, more or less anything that CBD can do. It seems to do it more consistently. There's more uh, data, I would say, to support it on the efficacy side and, and really importantly on the safety side too. So... If, if I was formulating in this area, and, and I do a lot of formulating work, I would probably go for PEA every time, simply because it's just going to be, from a the regulatory perspective, it's not going to cause the same kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah, I, I do like it. I think uh, I'm certainly going to start incorporating it in practice uh, with with clients, and uh, and you know potentially see what impact that has. So most of our listeners are practitioners. So from a dosage point of view, and um, should people just uh, take it in supplement form? Should they just eat more egg yolks? How do people incorporate it? Well, I mean, if you want to do it uh, through food, you know, I think I would think how many eggs would you have to eat? I think probably between four and six eggs a day (laughs) to get a pharmacologically effective dose. Uh, or, mm-hmm. or at least the, the egg yolks. You don't have to eat the, eat the whites if you don't want to. Yep. I think some people would be concerned about the cholesterol. I wouldn't be, frankly. I don't think cholesterol is really an issue at all. But it's still uh, a significant number of calories, and some mm. people are allergic to, to eggs, and some people just don't like yeah. them. So I think there's a, there's a case 
So uh, it's easier to supplement. Uh, if you supplement, you know how much you're eating, how much you're actually taking in. With uh, egg yolks, you um, there's probably a certain amount of biological variability. It's non-standardized. Yeah. Uh, supplements are just easier. You can add them to whatever else you're going to eat, and you don't have that possibility uh, of a of an allergic reaction, which. I mean, allergy is one of the other problems that has become so very common. And again, we can go back to the uh, the, uh, the industrial diet, which absolutely encourages food allergy. Um, so yeah, mm. I like I like prefer to supplement rather than rather than uh, go via food. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a far easier way. And so, it's dosage. What's uh, what's the dose that people should be uh, using? Uh, well, depending on the condition that you want to treat and its severity, I think start off with, say, somewhere between three or 500 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. Do you have that in divided doses? Well, I mean, I have to say, Adrian, I'm not, I'm not completely convinced. I mean, it may be a single dose might work. Is, is it doing it, BID, going to give you a better effect? I, I, maybe. And, but then again, it partly depends on which form you're using. If you're going to use Levagen, and we talked about that before, and that's got this really good bioavailability, you're going to achieve pretty good plasma levels, probably uh, functional plasma levels with a smaller dose. And at that point, you could divide it into go for DID and get a better temporal coverage. You can titrate yourself if 300 to 500 milligrams isn't going to do it. You could very happily and safely go up to 1,200, 1,500 milligrams I personally would be comfortable taking, you know, 2,000, 2,500 milligrams if I was going to use it for personal use, let's say to uh, to treat muscle sprain or strain because I do a certain amount of sports still. As I said, the, 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 the therapeutic index is very wide and normally when, we, uh, when we're recommending or taking analgesics, we worry if we're, uh, if we're using NSAIDs, we, we worry about peptic yeah. ulceration. Paracetamol is always the hepatotoxicity issue. Here in North America, we're we're drowning in neo opioids, which I don't recommend at all. So, can you use it acutely? Like, if you've got a migraine or a um, or like a, a sprain or an injury, and just have higher doses initially? Because you does it work that way? Does it? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, Jancor did a really good study, in fact, looking at headaches, and they found that um, you have a, a really bad headache, you, uh, you can knock up a couple of uh, Levodan capsules back, and the, um, the the headache will go away, and rather more rapidly than it would do if you had been using, um, you know, one of the um, one of the pharmaceutical analgesics. I, I, I really like the PEI. I mean, I find it very useful personally in, in dealing with, uh, with customers and patients. And, and once again, it's, it's the safety aspect. It, it gives you the security of knowing that whatever else is going on, you're not going to damage your patient in any way. Wow. Okay. So, so you could use it acutely. You could also use it more chronically. Um, and then obviously the dosages can vary from 150 milligrams to, to you know, as high as you want to, you know, as, to 2,000 milligrams. But ultimately the studies have primarily been about that, you know, for headaches and migraines and exercise. I think it's what between that one, uh, 150 and 600 milligrams, is that pretty much what the, the clinical trials have been using? Yeah, a bunch of the studies have. Um, but, but as I'm saying, we, if, you, if you go back through all the trials that have been done, largest, larger doses have been, have been yep. used at various times without any problems. And any contraindications with if people are on, on medications, can they still take PA with that? 
well, there's no evidence that I'm aware of uh, which show up any uh, contraindications or interactions. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no limits either on duration of use. Now, it may be that as PEA is more frequently used, as the, vol- as the volumes of PEA being consumed out there increase, we may eventually become aware of problems associated with you know, some rare and unexpected type of interaction or some type of contraindication. But mm-hmm. you know, I'm, not, I'm not convinced. If you look at contraindications, this, as I said, it's an autocoid. This is something the body itself produces when mm-hmm. it's uh, been injured or stressed or strained. We're very good at breaking it down when uh, its usefulness has, has, um, has been exceeded. You're not uh, loading, this is not a xenomolecule that you're presenting to the body. It's a molecule that the body is extremely familiar with and very comfortable with. So as I said, I'm not aware of any contraindications. And as far as interactions go, not with other, not with other analgesics, the mode of action mm-hmm. is is, uh, is fairly robustly different. Um, nor am I aware of any contraindications with any other class of pharmaceuticals. Now, that's not to say that something at some point will not emerge. That may well happen, yep. uh, and we'll be keeping an eye out for it. Yeah, but it's certainly got a, a high safety tolerance, so that's uh, great. And would you? What about other um, other? You know, if, if somebody's experiencing a pain condition, whether it's a chronic back pain or. or Migraines. Right. Um, are there other nutrients that you think would kind of complement PEA? Oh, golly, yeah. I mean, where to start? Um, <laughs> if you're focusing on uh, managing inflammation, and inflammation, of course, is a component of many different types of pain, uh, I think you should consider the general class of polyphenols. Uh, mm-hmm. I know the popular choices at the moment, I mean, a lot of people use the curcuminoids. Uh, personally, I prefer the amphetylic polyphenols that you get, uh, get from olives, uh, olives mm-hmm. and, and from marine algae, the fluoroterrant. Um, the reason why I like them is, first of all, the bioavailability of these is, is pretty good, uh, but also they're stored in the body. They're stored in lipid components in the body, so not just adipose tissue, but um, in, in, for example, in, uh, in cell membranes. Um, the uh, hydrophilic polyphenols are regarded by the body as foreign molecules, and so you tend to break them down fairly quickly and exclude them from the body. And it's a little bit complex because some of the breakdown products are probably active as well. And it's now become, it's recently become pretty obvious that some of the polyphenols act on the body via the microbiota, the colonic microbiota. So they're not acting mm-hmm. directly on, on, on physiological systems. So it's all a bit complicated. But the, um, the, the amphiphiles, uh, the amphiphilic polyphenols are ones I particularly like. But I think you should also consider the dysbiosis uh, endotoxemia connection. So if you're dysbiotic, you're going to be endotoxemic as well, which means a lot of inflammation in different parts of the body, particularly in the liver, the CV system and the brain. And so uh, I would certainly recommend the use of blended prebiotic fibers as well. Get your patient Mm -hmm. back to being eubiotic. And at that point, you're removing another very significant driver of pain. Thank you very much, Matt. I mean, I think that, um, you know, certainly there's lots of great information that you presented today and, and I think the, uh, the interest in PA is going to increase even further and the research is accumulating and 
I must admit, I'm, in, I'm impressed. I'm, uh, I'd certainly love to do some, personally, I'd love to do some research in the area, particularly from a uh, brain kind of point of view. And I was also impressed on you know, one of the studies with regards to sleep. So, so it's a great area and a great uh, nutrients to, uh, to really consider with uh, patients, particularly from an inflammatory perspective. So, Paul, thank you very much today for um, our discussion. I, I, I could go forever talking to you. Uh, there's your, your wealth of knowledge, and every time I talk to you, I, I walk away thinking, wow, you know. So, thank you very much for talking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, likewise, likewise, Adrian. And listen, if you get to the point where you're starting to think of doing a little study with this, uh, in um, perhaps one of the, uh, in, in, in generally in the mental health area, um, I'd love to work with you together on that. Oh, that'd be brilliant. That sounds great. So hopefully we'll be in touch soon to discuss it. Ah, terrific, terrific. Thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues.